Hello, welcome to The Key with IHE. Uh, we're back for a, a special bonus episode, uh, 34 episodes in the can. Um, we thought we would roll back the tape and do a, a year in review and, and what a year it was. Um, and so I am joined by a, a previous guest on The Key for this special episode uh, that you could call The Key After Dark. That's, that's my working title for this episode, but it's actually daytime. But I am joined now by Aaron Hennessy, Vice President of TVP Communications. Aaron, how are you? Hey, Paul. Happy almost end of 2020. And to you. Thank you for joining me on uh, December 30th for this. Happy to be episode. a returning champion. Yeah, so that was that was quite the year. Um, and just so folks know, uh, you you were on the show uh, during the peak of the should we go online or go on campus phase and we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit but uh you and i go pretty far back in my my days i think actually when i was a cub reporter in the higher ed trades at the chronicle um it was the first time i spoke with you and we've discussed this over the years but i believe our first chat was when you called me to complain about an error in the blurb i wrote and you dispute this um, though we do dispute this. You have yet to produce any evidence that indicates that ever happened. It is interesting to me, you've moderated your language because usually when we talk about this, I am told you, I yelled at you to demand a correction. And I think anyone who knows me knows that I am uh, much too refined and polite to ever yell at a reporter uh, because I have the greatest respect for the work that you and your colleagues do. Well, that's so kind of you. Mm -hmm. You know, you're right. I guess you do have to present evidence when making an accusation. Um, and I, I do not have any, but I haven't mm -hmm. given up the hunt for that. I may still find that correction. But well, um, that'll be a, a great undertaking for you in your new role in 2021. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, stay tuned for that. But, um, you know, I, I I can't remember exactly when this was. It may have been January, it may have been February. But uh, I was doing some early doom scrolling on COVID, and I, I think I reached out to you to say, whoa, what's your take on this virus thing? Looking bad, and you were like, eh, it's a little too early to panic, Paul, but my MO is to be pretty dark in, in my prognostications, and uh, you know, I so I think that was actually one of my first interactions about the virus. Do you remember that? Yeah, doesn't that feel like um, approximately 150 years ago? If this year, has taught us anything, I think it is that we should all stop prognosticating because very, very few of us were, I think, able to predict what, what this would actually end up looking like. We tell our crisis communications clients all the time to really keep those crisis communications plans light and uh, flexible because whatever list of terrible things you have in that binder that may befall your institution or your students, you certainly aren't going to cover what actually is going to come your way. And I think COVID uh, makes that point in a, a really, really uh, striking way that there was, we've all thought about mumps and we've all thought about mononucleosis and other things that are easily transmitted in, in residence halls and congregate living settings. Uh, but no one, absolutely no one, uh, in higher ed, I think could have seen this coming and, and seen it unfold in this particular way. So I have decided to stop prognosticating about absolutely everything. It's a good policy. I like never tweet. Um, but yeah, you know, Politico <laughs> pulled together the worst prognostications of 2020, I think yesterday, and it's, it's worth looking at. But you know, to prepare for this, 
I looked at Inside Higher Ed's annual in and out list, where we kind of talk about what was in in the previous year and what's what's in for the next year. And sure. the one that we published a year ago is just totally worthless. Like, <laughs> and I worked on that, so I can take credit for it. I mean, just not even interesting. Like everything that was a thing back then, pretty much just got outshined by the big, big story. So um, what was the, what was the most wildly off base in that you had? You know, honestly, they were also unremarkable because they were smaller tensions and disputes in in ways that just didn't really rank for us in our coverage this year. Um, You know, like nothing even stuck in my mind. It was that bad. (laughs) So it just wasn't the year at all that we predicted. And, you know, I felt like we were decent with those in previous years, at least identifying, hey, you should watch this controversy. And that didn't happen this year. For me, it was was real from the get-go. But in April, when it had really gotten serious in New York and New Jersey and Connecticut, I was reading a New York Daily News op-ed by Michael Yarbrough, uh, assistant professor of law and society at uh, CUNY's John Jay College of Criminal Justice. And he was writing about the impact of the virus in April on his class. And so he wrote six students in the class or about 25% have had COVID-19 cases confirmed. 16 students, so that's over 60%, reported more than 30 total family members testing positive and six students were mourning the loss of family members or close friends. And, uh, you know, that piece made the rounds and, and, you know, the New Yorker wrote about it, but, you know, just, it, it showed that the virus had come to higher ed. Yeah, in, in very stark and, and profound ways. And I, I am grateful for Professor Yarborough for sharing uh, what he did about his students, because I think it's, it was really easy still at that time to say, this is somewhere else. This is something else. This is New York. This isn't where I am. This is an issue that is affecting a particular type of institution. And I'm grateful that he was willing to, to step forward and share what he did about his students' experience, because I think uh, for those folks really paying attention at that point, it made it very, very real to, to say, this is what my students are grappling with, not just their own particular health, but that of their family, um, that of their networks, of their support systems, of their children, of their parents. I think that was a really seminal piece. And I think when we look back with a bit more hindsight, you know, maybe this year or next year, it's, it's really going to emphasize that our faculty members were seeing this first and foremost in their classrooms and seeing the impact that it was having on their students. Absolutely. And in that piece, I think, showed, hey, uh, the rest of the country, this may be what you're dealing with soon. Yeah. So in August, Marjorie Valbrun, our managing editor at Inside Hard, uh, she wrote about Professor Yarbrough. And in August, she and I interviewed him and Paula Camila Cacheres, one of his students who ran a project with that class to kind of analyze the impacts of the virus on her fellow students. So I'm gonna roll the tape now to hear what they had to say in August. A lot of people are like putting aside sort of the like the correctness of things and just pursuing like brutal honesty because that's what's needed. And like, yes, transparency is a word that's thrown, uh, that's thrown around through like all bureaucracies, but there's never real transparency unless people really demand it. And I think that's what a lot of people are demanding right now, specifically. That was Paula Camila. Here's Professor Yarbrough. There was a piece um, that someone wrote, I think in Boston Review, that talked about a culture of toxic positivity among academic administrators. And I think 
that was apt. I think that sometimes management has an impulse to focus on the positive, and I think that's understandable and to some extent, you know, should be done. But I think it can erode trust among the faculty, staff, and students when administrators are not acknowledging in a real way the challenges that people are facing or not acknowledging directly that people are dying, that people are, you know, in dangerously ill. And I think once trust is eroded, it's going to be hard to get back. So that was the first time I'd heard the term toxic positivity in this context. It wasn't the last. And a few months later, I talked with Michael Sorrell, president of Paul Quinn College in Texas, and actually mentioned that term. And he said he really liked it. And he went on to be pretty, pretty critical of some of his peers among college presidents and how transparent they were about the decision to reopen. I'm going to play that tape, but I'm also going to play uh, Alfred Anthony Pincard, the president of Wilberforce University and HBCU in Ohio, who talked about the other side of that coin of, of trying to keep positive and, and to encourage faculty, staff, and students. You know, one of the reasons I talked with President Pincard was by that point in October, it become clear that mental health and anxiety was, you know, it, probably the top barrier to students sticking with it, even beyond finances. Um, so let's roll that tape. Here's President Sorrell. The best interest of the student is to be honest about the pandemic, right? And to say, we have no idea what we're dealing with, right? We don't even know what this is going to do to you long-term. But here's what we do know. We built you all a bunch of really cool stuff that you weren't gonna come here if we didn't have. So the debt service is owed on these things. If we don't have you on campus, we can't pay for the shiny climbing walls and the lazy rivers that you guys wanted, right? And we didn't have the self-discipline to tell you no. Here's President Pinkard from Wilberforce talking about how he was communicating with the university's students. But I also say to them that you're young and you're resilient. That is part of being young, that you will get through this, that this pandemic will not be with us forever. It's not, we can look at history and see that it's not going to be forever. All right, Aaron. So uh, as a communicator, not an easy time to strike that balance, as you can hear from these comments. No, you're absolutely right. And I think for leadership, that has been the biggest challenge. Positive is sort of the default. We want to keep people motivated and engaged and help them feel that there is something they can do to work their way through this crisis and there's a light at the end of the tunnel and I swear to you, it's not an oncoming train. It's also, it's a lot easier to write the positive message, the nuanced, balanced, uh, here's what we know, here's what we don't, but I encourage you to stick with this message is harder. It takes more time to write it. It takes more time to read it. And we can't always be sure that that our students, that our faculty, that our staff are going to read that long nuanced email. We're not a society that does that. We are a society that doom scrolls, finds the worst thing, and runs off into the closet to hide from it. And, and I don't blame anyone for having that reaction. I also think what we are seeing in this crisis more than anything else, you know, we wrote a, a sort of end of the year blog post at TVP comms where we talked about the fact that um, this is a crisis that, that didn't hit one institution. It hit 
every institution. And it didn't hit institutions, it hit the staff, the faculty, the students, their parents, their children, their grandmothers, grandfathers, friends. This was encompassing in terms of its impact. And I think that anxiety drove a lot of the decisions that, that everyone made, including leadership, to figure out how to talk about this, to figure out how to absorb information about this. And so I'm not surprised that a lot of leaders leaned in on a straight positive message to try and keep students motivated, engaged, and moving forward. Again, the, the nuance is harder, particularly when you don't know what the nuances are yet. Day to day, early in this situation, those nuances changed. I can, I can touch a door handle. I shouldn't touch a door handle. Um, you know, it, every single week it felt like we were getting new directives and new information. And it's hard to track that and then bubble that up to communications to then share with the community. So I think that was an enormous challenge early on. And I'm delighted that Paula Camilla called out that, that concept of, of toxic positivity. It was also one I hadn't heard before, but I think now is making the rounds. And I think they did a really admirable job of flagging for all of us the need to find that balance as hard as it was and to continue to push that balance in all of our communications with everyone we're reaching out to during this pandemic. Absolutely. One of the pieces that, you know, we, we looking back at April, how different we felt about so many things. I mean, all of us know that in our personal lives, like being out on the street, uh, you know, you would kind of stay at least 50 feet away from someone. I remember it was the CDC guidelines and now we know yeah. that that's less of an issue. Um, so everybody has kind of learned and it's hard to remember what we were feeling exactly in April. Yeah. I but mean, I, we weren't, I don't think we were even in a mask mandate in April. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's still, I think for a lot of places, you know, you had politicians calling them a New York thing, you know, it's just, it's not going to come here. I think a lot of people were still in that, in that phase. Um, yeah. But, you know, I remember uh, Professor Yarbrough's piece in the New York Daily News did a great job of saying, you know, who, which higher ed are we talking about here? You know, a lot of the coverage back then was residential campuses and what are they going to do? And, and the students are leaving and now they're at home with their wealthy parents on Zoom. And, and, he, and he made the point that I think you can't make enough that about 15 percent of American college students are residential at this point. So like anything, you know, you, there is no higher ed you can talk about here. Right. Just as there's no media you can talk about either. I think what we have seen in this pandemic more than anything else is a continued bifurcation because it certainly isn't new, but a, a more stark or better understood bifurcation between the haves and the haves nots. Purdue can do things that Wilberforce can't do. All of these large research institutions have a foot up on every other institution in the country because of their access to in-house expertise like an epidemiology department, like um, a medical school, these kinds of resources can't be um, overemphasized in a situation like this. And those kinds of resources, unless there are really good partnerships probably already in place, aren't going to be used to help the small religiously affiliated um, teeny tiny institution somewhere in the Midwest or the community college um, in fill in the blank state. It, it really became this very stark understanding that the institutions that were going to come through this the best are the ones that were already doing the best in terms of resources, in terms of access, in terms of just sheer financial ability 
to take what's coming at you and roll with it for a semester or two. And that isn't the case at the vast majority of our institutions. Yep. And, and as everybody's heard by now, you know, one way to look at COVID is it's a, a truth revealer. It's, it, you know, it shows existing problems in a much more stark uh, light. Um, and, you know, I think to your point about the elite, the highly selective institutions, the R1s, you know, in the early coverage of the pandemic, we were helped by them at IHE because they knew what was coming. <laughs> you know, uh, Stanford yes. and MIT, University of Washington, you know, some, when they started making moves to restrict uh, gathering sizes or, or class sizes, you know, we would ask them, Lila Burke and others at IHE, you know, what, where did you get this? And it's our infectious disease experts are telling us, advising us that gatherings over 15 are a problem. Um, so they had that advantage too. Let's go forward um, to May when uh, the California State University system, obviously 500,000 students, one of the most important, largest university systems in the country. It's Chancellor Tim White made the decision to go forward with a fully distant fall, a largely remote fall, some, some small numbers of students returning to campuses. To us, that was a, a, a big bomb dropped on American higher ed. It got a lot of media coverage. Um, you know, from your end of the kind of media comms side of things, what was that like when you were working with institutions? I mean, did they see that news and did it affect kind of their planning in any way or their communications? That's a great question. A lot of the institutions that we work with um, certainly tracked that decision. I, I think um, both because it was perceived as being quote unquote so early they also tracked that decision simply because of the the size of the system, obviously, and because of their, frankly, their respect for for Tim White and for his leadership of the of the system to that point. I don't know how many institutions looked at it and said, "Oh man, this should affect our thinking." But I do think that a lot of college and university presidents looked at that decision and said, "This just made my messaging job harder." regardless of what the decision I'm about to make is, unless it was also a completely remote uh, fall semester, I now have to swim against that current. And I think it was interesting to, to watch a lot of, of colleges and universities across the country say, track what other institutions were doing, whether they were peers or aspirational or the, you know, the big institution in my state, whatever it was, and not necessarily say, that's where things are going and we need to be there because there are so many differences in the kinds of students served and the kinds of institution and the mission and all of those things, but more, how is this going to impact my ability to communicate what I need to communicate to students, to parents um, for the more traditionally aged uh, populations, but to, to students overall, because our students, as we know, are extremely savvy consumers in a lot of ways. And they're also tracking all of these decisions um, and are empowered by the way that we position ourselves to be very cons uh, customer service oriented um, in a competitive marketplace. We've trained our students to say, hang on a second, this place down the road is doing this and why aren't we? Uh, they're very engaged in pushing back on leadership decisions that they disagree with or that they don't fully understand why we made them. And I think that sort of goes back to when we make these decisions as institutions, we need to say, here's why, here's how, here's how we got there. That kind of transparency isn't necessarily going to win everybody over, but at least we have something to point to to say, here's how we made the decision. You might not like it, 
but I'm going to be open with you about how we got there. Yeah. And you know, the, that whole interview with Tim White is, is worth a listen if you're interested in that. Um, it was, I think our, our most downloaded episode as well. Um, yeah, it was, surprise. it was a great conversation. And I think he made the case of here's what I'm thinking about as I make this big decision that I'm, I'm sure he was very cognizant was going to have um, repercussions across the state of California and across the country um, to say, we have a workforce of X tens of thousands of people. Um, in addition to a student body of this size, we, we have to take the responsibility of how we interact with our communities very, very seriously. Um, and I think he did a great job being transparent about what drove that decision. We're going to run a little snippet of uh, Chancellor White's thoughts in May. Um, but before we do, my colleague Rick Seltzer wrote about him recently in December. One of his quotes really stuck with me that, you know, he he wanted to make a decision that he was sure he would, you know, be proud of. And looking back, that even if it was the wrong one, he'd be okay with it. And that was the the remote fault. Um, so let's cue that tape. And, and everybody's going to have to make decisions that make sense to them. I would just implore people to not be in denial about the seriousness of this issue and to not be planning sort of a few months in advance or one term in advance, but really put sort of a two-year horizon on this thing. All right. So after Tim White made his call, many other institutions uh, made theirs. Sometimes it took a little little longer than others. Um, but by the end of the summer, we had a pretty good sense of how remote the fall was going to be. During that time, there was a lot of questions about the impact on enrollments nationwide and, you know, making projections about what's going to happen in a pandemic is tough. But, you know, the previous recessions, because we were already in a recession at that point, maybe even a depression, folks thought, you know, there's that counter cyclical uh, impact where uh, recessions tend to encourage more students to go back to college, particularly at open access institutions, lower income folks, uh, working adults, to kind of skill up to ride out the recession or to, to find a job after they've been displaced. You have wealthier students who are staying home who may do a year or a semester at their local community college or regional public. So some folks were really thinking that uh, community colleges and, and ASCU type institutions would see a big bump in enrollment. Mm -hmm. But rolling back the tape, which I'm going to do here in a minute, um, if you were listening to the key, you couldn't have been too surprised by the news that, in fact, actually the impact was felt far worse in terms of continued enrollment for lower income Black and Latino students, particularly at community colleges. So I'm going to play uh, first Steve Johnson, the president of Sinclair Community College in April, talking about that. And then uh, Kim Cook, the executive director of the National College Attainment Network in June, talking about NCAN's efforts to track FAFSA, the, the Federal Financial Aid Form Renewal, and uh, uh, filling out uh, for the first time how many students were doing that compared to previous years. And then finally, uh, Barbara Birdingham, who uh, I spoke with in July, who had just stepped down, had just retired that week as president of the New England Commission of Higher Education, which is a regional accreditor. Here we go. Here's Sinclair, Steve Johnson. They're sticking with us and they're finishing out their, their, their programs of study and finish out the term. But we're getting indications that they're probably 25 to 30% don't really like online. Mm -hmm. And so um, they're gonna probably sit out subsequent terms until they can go face to face. And here's Kim Cook from NCAN. 
everything about this journey is uncertain to many of our students. And when you layer on additional uncertainty of questions about, is it worth it? What will it look like? And quite frankly, will I be safe? Uh, will I have the tools? You know, we heard from, from many of our students uh, who had to pivot to virtual learning to end their senior year of high school. Uh, they struggled with an ability to have available devices and available internet access. And thinking about paying thousands of dollars to do that again uh, for college, it creates a lot of uncertainty. And finally, here's Barbara Brittingham. I'm, I'm very concerned about colleges and universities, and, and I think both public and independent. And again, I don't think anybody knows, but I know that there are some that could be easily destabilized by just, you know, an enrollment upset that comes along. I think the, the number of institutions that, as you suggest, pull back and are now going to go virtual is large. What the public reaction to that is going to be is hard to predict. I have a theory that there, that there are students out there now making multiple deposits. So when I hear so many presidents say that their deposits are up, it makes me nervous because I think they can't be up everywhere without people making multiple deposits, given, given the environment that we're in now. I think one reason colleges don't really know is that, um, and that may be change, it'll change over the next several weeks, but for a long time and, and still now, I think families don't know, students don't know what they're going to do. And, and if they don't know, then the colleges can't know. All right. So listening to that, Aaron, it's easier in hindsight to say, I mean, of course, but, you know, particularly Steve Johnson saying, you know, we're seeing that 25, 30 percent of students in, in this, you know, serving a community college student uh, don't want to go online in the fall for a variety of reasons. Um, probably shouldn't have been a surprise to folks that you know, a large chunk of the most vulnerable students would be leaving American higher education in the fall. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And you know, I'll footnote my earlier statement that 99.9% of prognosticators are, are wrong. These folks and some of the other folks that I know you talked to um, during the year were 100% right. There was absolutely a wave that, that we didn't see coming. And I, and I keep going back to this notion that there were so many things to track and to follow and that a lot of folks missed these enrollment declines as they were sort of headed towards us because there were so many other things to focus on. And because, you know, higher education, we look to the, to the evidence and the, and the prior cases and say, well, what happens before is going to happen again. Um, And we clearly were, a lot of folks were, and myself included, caught off guard by um, the, these developing numbers. When we really shouldn't have been. Um, again, this wasn't a. This wasn't just a recession. This wasn't just an impact on the employment sector. This was, um, and is still, an enormous societal impact beyond just um, the economic indicators. And so, it probably shouldn't have surprised us that. Um, folks felt so overwhelmed, felt so vulnerable in so many different ways that they said, I, what I'm going to do right now is sit tight and try and keep myself and my family safe and healthy. Um, and while it would be great to upskill, I, I need to get through the, the first couple of months of this and get some indication that I'm going to be okay, that me and mine are going to be okay. Correct. Yeah, that hierarchy of needs. Uh, yes, I need to figure out what I'm going to do in my career uh, when I'm losing wages or losing a job, but also need to figure out how to take care of my family to ride out a quarantine uh, took precedence. Right. And, and like I said before, an increasing body of data showed that uncertainty itself and anxiety was a huge barrier 
for, for, yeah. uh, for folks. Um, and, and I know, think, these, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, I think the other thing is we can talk about the value of upskilling and, and preparing yourself for a different, a different job or a different career field. In this case, it wasn't like there were a ton of jobs available that were, that were going fallow and we just needed more skilled workers to fill them. This was an economic disruption that was felt by every sector of the economy. Every industry was impacted. Every industry was shedding jobs. Higher ed itself has shed um, an enormous number of jobs over the last 10 months. And I think it's going to get worse um, as we head into to 2021 and, and on from there as we see the real impact of enrollment challenges um, exacerbated by demographic changes as well. And let's not forget about the looming state budget crisis that most states are going to face given tax revenues. So Happy New Year's, yeah. folks. Um, right. It, you know. It'll all be better in 2021, except all the things that won't be. Yeah, but there are there are reasons for hope. And, you know, we, we know a few more things about all of this than we did before. And, you know, there is that vaccine, those vaccines. Uh, but we that's not this show. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I do think, though, that it really became clear listening to the back catalog of episodes uh, that, there were a lot of truths that we knew that just got uh, a lot more clear to folks. And, you know, that gets at some of the disproportionate impact on enrollments. I mean, of, of course, you know, as we all know now, wealthy Americans are doing pretty well, doing better, working from home, uh, saving more money. So, you know, but that is just not felt by everybody else. Um, so I'm going to turn to a couple interviews that get into that idea of kind of the exposing and accelerating existing problems and the speed of change as well. Um, the first one is Laurel Espinosa. She was at the time vice president for research at the American Council on Education. I was speaking with her in June uh, just as she was leaving to go be a program director at the Sloan Foundation. So here's Laurel Espinosa speaking in June about emerging data on the disproportionate impact of the crisis on Black, Latino, and low-income Americans. And, you know, when you, when you already have that pre-existing condition that we talked about, and then you layer on a pandemic, uh, you know, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, this is, this is it. This, you know, this should surprise nobody, actually. If anybody is surprised by this, they should um, take a big step back and examine their assumptions and the lens through which they look at the world. This is perfectly, uh, you know, really something we should have expected. And so the, the question is, yeah, where is the action? And, you know, ch I would challenge leaders to think about what they should expect for the fall, you know, what they should expect for the next several years and be real about that and start to start to create solutions before they get to the crisis, before you know, we're at the end where it, you can hardly turn back. And it wasn't just, uh, you know, Laurel is talking about the broad impacts of, of the, the pandemic. You know, at that time in June, um, there were multiple crises college leaders were dealing with, of course, and, and students and everybody. The racial reckoning that really went to the next level after the killing of George Floyd. Uh, was roiling campuses, uh, colleges, the whole country. And uh, so I'm going to turn to uh, President Pinkard at Wilberforce on that issue, which his take on it was that, again, this was exposing existing problems. George Floyd brought into bold focus what every Black person in America has always known. 
including our students. And so this was a pivotal moment for them, but not in the way that you might imagine. This did not increase their anxiety. In fact, in some ways, this was an affirmation for what they had been experiencing. What was different was the fact that others who were not African-American were now recognizing what they have always known in their lives. Um, and now uh, higher ed itself, higher ed the industry, none of, really none of the challenges it's facing are entirely new, but it, they do seem more extreme now. And uh, I spoke with Paul LeBlanc, the president of Southern New Hampshire University, one of the nation's largest. He's also the board chair at ACE at the time. Uh, this is, we spoke in May about some of that, that question of what, what is this going to do to higher ed in, in the next stretch? And he had some strong thoughts there. There are a bunch of things we knew were true long before the pandemic. So we knew that higher education was too expensive for too many people. That is not news. We knew that our business models were increasingly broken. That is not news. We knew that online had better and better quality. That's not news. We know that a generation of learners who are digital natives are increasingly comfortable being served in, um, with digital tech solutions. That's not news. Um, we knew that states had underfunded their public institutions for years and years. That's not news. The pandemic, it's like rocket fuel to all of those truths. Um, so you can't wait. Like if you are gonna to try to sort of navigate these waters, you can't wait. You have to figure out now. All of our governance processes are slow processes of the past when we had the luxury of time. No one has the luxury of time. All right, so listening to all that, was there anything we should have been surprised by? I mean, it, it feels like so much of the challenges that we're all hearing about now were ones that were there before, they're just worse now. Yeah, you know, I, I go back to Laurel's point. None of this is new. We have been struggling to serve low-income, first-generation, underrepresented students on our campuses for ages for ages and ages, and the data all bear it out. The data sh can, you know, indicate there are some institutions that are, are really moving the needle here, are doing great work. They also tend to be the institutions that are going to be most directly impacted by the state budget cuts uh, that you mentioned previously, um, that are going to be most impacted by this demographic cliff. Uh, they're the institutions that are doing the most with the least. And this is going to set back their ability to serve those students. Um, but no, none of this is surprising. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be. And I, I'm not sure how we continue to hold the ground we have gained as we move forward when the resources um, that the industry has are just going to be so um, constrained as we move through 2021, 2022, honestly, probably out to 2025 at the least. Absolutely. And you know, when you, Talk to somebody like Paul LeBlanc in April, and or I guess that was May, the, the urgency that they were feeling about accelerating their plans. I mean, this is not a sit on your laurels sort of university. They had big plans in the works and, you know, we're, we're moving up the timeline from three or four years to, to doing it in one, whether that was the big discounting on, on their campus-based uh, programs. You know, I think that's the case for a lot of institutions where, you know, you see the Arizona States, the Western Governors, the SNUs doing well online because they did well online before. 
And that's, that's a simple way of looking at that. But I think nobody's slowing down now, even institutions that have, have ridden this out pretty well. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think you and I have had a ton of conversations over the years about what the next big disruption to higher education is going to be. And for, you know, a hot minute, it was MOOCs. And before that, it was online education. And while these things sort of changed the industry at the edges, we didn't see the sort of big existential disruption that COVID has, has brought to our, all of our doorsteps. Um, what I think that means is a couple of things. I think this is the thing that will change a lot of opinions about the efficacy and the value and the worth of online education. I think it will also put some institutions in a position where if they haven't already laid the groundwork for an online presence and online delivery of courses, they're too far behind the eight ball at this point. Uh, you know, we've had this conversation back in, in the heady days of Mookapalooza when we talked about MOOCs and online education aren't just the professor at the front of the room talking into a video camera. It's a different way of teaching. It's a different way of learning. So institutions that are feeling suddenly motivated and like this is going to be the thing that saves their bottom line, I worry they are too far behind the eight ball and it is going to exacerbate pressures on those kinds of institutions, again, in a sort of existential way in the reckoning that everyone has predicted that, you know, has been coming for years and years and years, I think will be accelerated and we're going to see a lot more closures in 2021 you know, this podcast could be six hours long and probably you and I would be the only ones who would listen to it. But there's so much to talk about around what admissions for fall semester looks like. I feel like the admissions folks we're talking to are back, you know, in the, in the 1990s when I was an admissions officer, just waiting by the mailbox to see what happens. All of the tools and apps and data analytics that we've invested in over the years aren't telling us much. And folks are going to grab for whatever they think um, will help them recruit students, retain students, and help students progress towards a degree. But for the ones that are just thinking about that now, I worry it's too late. Yes. And, you know, I'm going to roll one last little snippet here. Uh, you know, looking forward, uh, I was trying to think about the pieces that I haven't heard as much about that seemed really important and frankly alarming. And uh, this is a, a little snippet from an interview I did in June with Johnny Taylor, the president and CEO of the Society for Human Resource Management. And Taylor's also the former president and CEO of the Thurgood Marshall College Fund. So let's listen to what he had to say. Here's Taylor in June talking about the disruption of pre-K-12 schools and what that might mean for higher ed. Which means a total year out of a kid's education. This is disastrous. And I don't think there's enough of a conversation being had about what you're going to need to do when that kid shows up on your college campus. And you're gonna, you can't just say, then I won't admit them, because there's already a shortage of students coming to college anyway because of the birth rate problem. Higher ed has got to figure out now what it's going to do, because the PK through 12 problem is going to become their problem very soon. So, you know, I think we all know uh, more than, than ever before that if you care about higher ed or work about work in it, uh, you need to care about what happens after college. You need to pay attention to the job market and employers and employment outcomes. But you also have to know what's going on in K-12. And there is a big, big problem in K-12 if you haven't been reading the news uh, with students missing school and, of course, the impact being felt worst by 
lower income black and Latino students and what that means about college access. Yeah, and, and it's a, again, an issue we've been talking about and been cognizant of for years and higher ed has in many ways stepped in to help support school systems that are under-resourced, to help build pipelines and pathways from the high school classrooms in our most challenged communities to our campuses. Those efforts, again, need to be redoubled with what resources I couldn't tell you because it's going to get tougher and tougher. I I feel like coming out of this, um, higher ed is going to have so many number one absolutely vital priorities and have so few resources to dedicate to them. You hope that you start to see um, some of the creativity and innovation that our sector is known for um, answering those challenges. But again, I'm not predicting anything moving forward anymore ever again. But those PK-12 students who are in the pipeline now, this is, this is not next year's problem. This is not the graduating senior class figuring out if they can take um, SAT or ACT exams and how they explain um, changed performance in online uh, or remote education. This is a problem with sophomores and freshmen and eighth graders. And I look at my nine-year-old nephew and say, this is going to have an impact on him by the time that he reaches the college classroom. What that's going to be, I can't tell you, Uh, but this is not just a a one, two or three-year problem. This is generational and probably multi-generational. You know, pretty much every episode of the key, uh, when I would start the interview, folks would talk about, you know, I may be interrupted by a child or by a pet. Um, And, you know, as a a working parent myself with a five-year-old doing online kindergarten, I could commiserate and I often did. And to me, it just always hit me like, if this is hard for me, who has it about as good as you can have it in the society, what is that like for folks out there who have multiple children, work in multiple jobs, or maybe lost a job? You know, just unbelievable. And I, I think we just cannot talk enough about the impact on those children. You know, I think if there's a kind of Apollo project for society next year, I hope that's that's in the running. Yeah, agreed. I, I to your point, am very cognizant, perhaps now more than ever before, of the number of privileges that I come to this work with. Um, I watch my colleagues who are doing the same thing that you're doing, educating their kids and running a business. And it's, it's staggering. And when you, you know, layer additional challenges on top of that, it's, it's sobering. It, It really is sobering. And this is, this is our future and somewhere out there staring into a Google classroom as a future president of the United States. And it, it really is something to think about that, that this is going to be a defining part of, of these kids' development and growth and, and personal histories. Well, watching my five-year-old when the teacher's assistant's uh, computer freezes and she and her fellow classmates pull out the snacks that they've been hiding because you're not allowed to have snacks and they sing a little song, <laughs> you are frozen, you are frozen. And this I saw this multiple times it showed to me that there's a sophistication there that's just staggering. So on the the plus side, I'm going to be asking my five-year-old for help with Zoom, you know, in a matter of months, (laughs) if not before. Well, you know, that's going to do it for this episode and for the key uh, under my uh, host duties. So um, I want to thank you, Aaron, for doing this. You know, uh, depending on no prognostications for 2021, but if I come back to podcasting, Hopefully I can have you on to talk about the latest social media outrage or something that's a little less uh, 
difficult than than this year. But um, I appreciate would, you you reviewing this with me. That would be nice. And Paul, I I know you, the odds are high that you'll probably cut this, um, but I'd be remiss if I didn't say what an absolute gift this podcast has been to all of us who care about this industry and the fact that um, you conceived it and birthed it and have raised it uh, over the last 10 months and and brought together some really spectacular minds to help us all think through uh, what we're dealing with this year. It's it's really been a great act of service on your part. You are an absolute delight to work with. I'm grateful to call you a friend and we'll be wishing every good thing for you in whatever is next. Thanks, Erin. I may cut that. And that's that's the beauty of uh, being a podcast host. You can just kind of cut some stuff. Uh, no, I, I really appreciate it. You know, the, the idea with the podcast was <clears throat> to harness some of the increased reader interest in what we were doing in, early in the pandemic and to really shine more of a spotlight on vulnerable students and the impact on them. So I appreciate all the folks who came on to answer my vague 30,000 foot questions about this fast moving, incredible time that we've all lived through. And, and thanks to all of you for listening as well. Happy New Year's.